The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. It's good to be with you this morning, everyone. Our uh, message this morning is going to come from three long, poetic, beautiful, powerful chapters from Isaiah, Isaiah 58 through 60. So I want to read uh, selections from Isaiah 58, 1 through, or excuse me, 58 through 60 now. So hear the word from the prophet. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet to declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with the wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. But as Isaiah 59 makes clear, the people of God refused this offer. And so the people say in verse 12 through 16 of chapter 59, For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. And because of that, in chapter 60, the prophet breaks forth in a new song. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth. And thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you. And his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. In that day, the prophet continues in verse 17 through 22, 
speaking on behalf of the Lord. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. And instead of wood, bronze. And instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace. And your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. For the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting. The work of my hands. That I might be glorified. And the least one shall become a clan. And the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time I will hasten it. This is the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, 53 years ago this spring, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. came to Memphis. He came here to the buckle of the Bible belt because in this community, there was a community in constant religious activity that at the same time was a city marred by relentless injustice and oppression, often perpetrated by those same relentlessly religious people and communities. He came here to support the sanitation workers who were going on strike for fair wages and better working conditions. He came to Memphis, in other words, because this community, this place where we stand, was a lot like the community in which Isaiah stood. A community in which Isaiah said, you combine relentless worship with relentless oppression, not least against your workers in Isaiah's day, just like those sanitation workers in Dr. King's. Fifty-three years ago last Saturday, King stood up not far from here to give his final speech. And he drew on the story of the Good Samaritan to call his audience to a kind of dangerous unselfishness. This dangerous unselfishness would include not only standing up and marching with the strikers, but also investing in black businesses, boycotting segregated businesses, and generally, in general, lifting up one's voice to support the poor. King knew, and he said 53 years ago last Saturday, that this kind of dangerous unselfishness could cost one one's life. In other words, he knew that this community, like the one that Isaiah stood in and the one Isaiah described, was a community in which justice is turned back, righteousness stands far away, where truth stumbles in the public squares where truth is lacking even among the people of God because Isaiah knew, like Dr. King knew, in a community like that, anyone who departs from evil makes themselves a prey. And 53 years ago, last Sunday, on the day that we celebrated Jesus' resurrection, Dr. King became the prey of an assassin's bullet because of his departure from evil. King was leading a movement 
of departure from evil that he knew could cost him his life. But that evening before 53 years ago, last Saturday, he not only talked about the danger, he talked about the hope. He looked at the people in front of them and he said, I see a movement. I see a movement of pastors from every corner of the city standing up together to do the gospel ministry of raising their voices for the poor. And that brings me hope. He looked out and he saw a city rising up to stand with these sanitation workers rallying around, as he said, these brothers and sisters who are suffering. And that gave him hope. But in the final lines of that final speech, he looked beyond the hope embodied in the people in the pews and seats in front of him to a greater hope. He knew that the movement could cost him his life. He knew that long life was a good. Longevity has its place, as he said. But in those last lines, he looked beyond all of that and he said, I'm not worried now. I'm not fearing any man. Why? Because my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Those last words, those last public words of Dr. King's spoke to a hope in the face of a community of faith committed to injustice, a hope grounded in the glory and commitment of God. A hope grounded in the glory and commitment of a God committed to bending the moral arc of the universe towards justice, as Dr. King put it. And not only bending that moral arc, but using his people to participate in that work. I want to suggest to you this morning that the world that Dr. King saw that last evening of his life and bore witness to is the same world that the prophet Isaiah saw in his day and offers to us in ours. In fact, I want to suggest to you that the big idea of these big, bold, beautiful, long chapters of poetry Isaiah 58, 59 through 60. The big idea is simply this. The Lord will do whatever it takes to accomplish his plan, to so dwell with his people that they radiate his justice in the world for the world. I know that's a long sentence, but I got three chapters, so hang in there with me. The Lord will do whatever it takes to accomplish his plan, to so dwell with his people that they radiate his justice in the world for the sake of the world. Now that sounds, that mission of God dwelling with a people who resound with his character for the sake of the nations sounds familiar. It's because Isaiah has been talking about it for 57 chapters. We've preached this message again and again, but you're not allowed to be bored because if Isaiah felt the need to preach it 58 times, 59 times, 60 times, so will we, right? This is the word of the Lord for the people of God today. But this passage is not focused as much on the fact of that mission of God dwelling with his people to such an extent that they radiate his justice in the world for the sake of the world. These chapters are primarily focused on what it takes for God to get that plan back on track. We know the mission if we've been listening to Isaiah. But in these chapters, Isaiah hones in to tell us exactly what it's going to take to get God's purposes for his people back on track. So what's it going to take? Well, I think the text tells us it's going to take at least four things. First, getting God's plan back on track requires the people of God to be confronted 
by their unjust hypocrisy. Getting the plan back on track requires God's people, then and now, to be confronted by their unjust hypocrisy. Listen to how God calls out the people's unjust hypocrisy in these words. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgressions, to the house of Jacob their sins. And what are these sins? Behold, in the day of your fast, the special day that you've set aside for worship of me, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. And we heard Isaiah 58 unpack all the ways they did that. Listen to how God calls his people in chapter 59, a passage we did not read. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Translation, if you feel like God is far from you, that ain't his fault. It's not because his arm is too short or his ear can't hear. No, what is it? It's your iniquities that have made a separation between you and your God. It's your sins, the prophet says, that have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This separation that you're experiencing is on you, says the prophet. And what are these sins? Listen to how Isaiah piles up these descriptors. descriptors. Your hands are defiled with blood. Your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to the law in the courtroom. Honestly, they rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Listen to how this metaphor works. They hatch adder's eggs, snake's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies... And from one egg, that is, that is crushed, a viper, a poisonous snake is hatched. Think of what Isaiah said. He's saying, what this community gives birth to, think of all the joy that's supposed to attend a birth. What this community gives birth to is not life, is not joy, is not peace, is not goodness, it's death. What you give birth to is death. What comes out of the womb of this community is oppression and injustice. He calls them spiders who weave the web. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity. Think about how that metaphor works. The work that you do, the work that this community does, their workplaces do not weave together clothes to cover those naked that we encountered the chapter before. No, these workplaces create spider's webs to trap the innocent. Their works are works of iniquity. Their deeds of violence are in their hands. It's exhausting. Their feet run to evil. They're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their ways. The way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. The prophet calling out this unjust hypocrisy because it has to be called out. And the prophet making sure that they know and we know that such hypocritical injustice is all the worse because of the high purpose in God's plan to which this people had been called. What they're doing is evil, but it's even worse because they had been called to a fasting, a worshipful worshipful way of life in which they were loosing the bonds of wickedness, undoing the straps of the yoke, letting the oppressed go free, sharing the bread with the hungry, bringing the homeless poor into their own houses, pouring themselves out for the hungry. 
They were called to a worshipful way of life where they would satisfy the desire of the afflicted or oppressed. This fast, in other words, this worshipful way of life that they were called to was to be a way of justice. And as I've said before, quoting the Old Testament scholar John Goldingay, I think the best way to understand this justice is as the faithful exercise of power in community. So what they had been called to was a worshipful way of life characterized by the faithful exercise of power in community for the sake of the least, and instead they're snakes and spiders who spin webs for their oppressed workers and unsuspecting neighbors. More, chapter 58, in one of the sections we did not read, also called them to a Sabbath. Richard called us to a Sabbath a few weeks ago from Isaiah in which they would honor the Lord's Sabbath rather than their own pleasure so that they would take delight in the Lord, 58, 14. And if they had embraced this way of life, then their light would have broken forth like the dawn. Righteousness would have gone before them. The glory of the Lord would have been their rear guard. God would have been close to them, a delight for them, the one who satisfied them, the one who transformed them into a well-watered garden of delight. For them and for him. Now, we need to pause here. It's common for Christians reading this very popular chapter, Isaiah 58, to read the prophet as saying that the people have made a mistake. They have chosen the thing that God cares not much about, worship, when they should have chosen the thing that God cares a lot about, justice. We often read these passages pitting the worship of God and the doing of justice, as if they've just had two options and they made the wrong choice. But if we've been following Isaiah for lo these 58 chapters, we know that that can't be it. The problem is not that God wanted them to choose justice and they chose worship. The problem is that they have torn asunder that which God had bound together, a life with God in worship and a life on fire with God's own just and righteous love. See, the relentless message of Isaiah is that the worship of God and the just love of neighbor are two sides of the same coin, one seamless garment that cannot be torn in two. And if you try to tear apart the worship of God and the just exercise of power on behalf of the neighbor, you get neither. These people have got neither God showing up at their church services nor a society that reflects God's character because they've tried to separate what God will not allow to be separated. Why? Because this is his plan to so dwell amongst the people, to be so present among a people that they radiate, they hum, they resonate, they glow, they reverberate with God's own just merciful, righteous, loving character, especially on behalf of the oppressed. So getting that plan back on track requires first God to confront their unjust hypocrisy. But second, getting God's plan back on track requires God's people to plead guilty before those charges. This court case of God's has been running since the very first words of the book. Hear, O heavens and earth, God's complaint against his people. 
That's where Isaiah starts in 1.1. He's still at it here in 58 and 59, 58 chapters later. Because the need to get, the, 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 what has to happen for God's plan to get back on track is for the people not only to hear the charges, but to say guilty, guilty is charged. Now, it sounds really harsh what Isaiah is saying to these people, right? Like it's kind of actually, I mean, it's a, you know, this, okay, let's be honest. We at Downtown Church, we like justice preaching. So this is a favorite text. We're excited about this, but really think about it. He's saying when they fast, they fast in order to beat up their workers. Like that's pretty terrible, right? And, and we know, we know, uh, like Isaiah knows, that because justice is the faithful exercise of power in community, those who have more power play an outsized role in the injustice of a community. In other words, we, like Isaiah, know that the people at the top of the pyramid who have way more power than little old us bear way more responsibility for the unfaithful exercise of power, which we call injustice, in our society. And because the charges are so strong, we might be tempted to think here that Isaiah's words are reserved for the 1%, for the really terrible folks, for the people in the boardrooms in Washington, you know, for the guardians, the people who are really responsible for the ills of society. Because Isaiah knows that those who have more power are more responsible for the unjust society that we have because justice is about the faithful exercise of power in community. But if we thought that we could get off the hook by associating Isaiah's indictment only with those big unjust sinners over there, up there, somewhere else, Isaiah is not having any of it. Because while 59, he starts ranting the prophet, and it sounds like he could be talking about somebody else. You know, they, they, them, theirs, those, those people, right? Then all of a sudden, in 59.9, the people respond, and they leave behind all that they, them, and theirs business and turn to we, us, and ours business. It is we who hope for justice, all of us, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from all of us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. Isaiah calls the entire community from top to bottom to say guilty as charged. Because if we know, like Isaiah knows, that because justice is about the faithful exercise of power and community, the people with more power bear more responsibility... Isaiah knows what we have too often forgotten, that in a society as corrupt as ours, those of us with infinitely less power, nevertheless, find ways to unfaithfully use it ourselves against our neighbors. And so God calls us from the top of the pyramid to the bottom to say guilty as charged. The form of this guilty as charged plea is a plea of repentance and is a plea of lamentation that recognizes not just that God's people have failed, but that they are powerless to fix the problem. 
So if God wants to get his plan back on track, to so dwell with a people that they radiate his justice in the world for the world, he has to confront his people's unjust hypocrisy. They have to recognize the rightness of the charges. But third, getting God's plan back on track requires God himself to step on scene. It requires God himself to get involved. Listen to what Isaiah says. The Lord looked and it was displeasing that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one and he was appalled that none of his image bearers called to reflect his just character were there to intervene. He was appalled. And at this point, God had options. He could have wiped humanity off the face of the earth. He could have started over. He could have given up on his project. But when God looked and saw that there was no one, he did not give up on his project. He did not say, to hell with all of you. Instead, he looked and he intervened himself. His own arm achieved salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. God himself, the text tells us, put on the righteousness that he demanded from his people. He put it on himself as a breastplate. The helmet of righteous salvation, he put on his head. He wrapped himself in the garments of zeal for just judgment. God steps on the scene to do for his people what he had justly demanded from his people. Just as Isaiah in chapter 53 had promised a suffering servant who would intercede. Here we get the same word to describe a God who would intercede not just by suffering, but by delivering the just judgment that we all desire and yet all stand at least partially condemned by. And so God doesn't just step on the scene to bring justice as the warrior king. He steps on the scene to bring just judgment and to offer forgiveness. Look at what it says in 1920. This just warrior king who comes to bring just judgment in vengeance and zeal is also the redeemer who comes to Zion. To all those in Jacob who will turn from their transgression. God's just arrival in judgment becomes good news because the just king is also the forgiving redeemer. And it doesn't stop there. He doesn't just step on the scene to bring justice. He doesn't just step on the scene to offer forgiveness. Glory of glories against all expectations. He steps on the scene to restore us to his work as his covenant people. He steps on the scene to get his plan back on track. Hear these words. They come on the heels of the declaration that God will come as as judge and as forgiver. And as for me, this is my covenant with them. This is my unbreakable contract with them. My spirit is upon you. And my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Do you get what God's saying there? See, when God steps on the scene, He doesn't just clean the slate. He deals with the unjust, sinful structure of your heart. The only way possible, by filling your heart with His 
presence, his spirit presence. Note that that's in the mouth, the spirit in the mouth. In other words, all the commands and the way and the word of God that called people to a way of justice and righteousness, that will reside in your mouths. And the promise is even bigger than that. Because those of you who are parents, who know that you have brought children into an unjust world that you are partially responsible for, surely we must weep for joy when we hear that God will not only put His Spirit in our mouths, but in the mouths of our children and our children's children forever. Why? Why would He do that? Why would He rescue us and our children out from under our unjust war against Him? Because God will do whatever it takes to so dwell with the people that we reverberate and radiate His justice in the world for the sake of the world. And it is only because this God steps on the scene that in chapter 59, the, the lament and the repentance of chapter 59 gives way to the outpouring of praise in chapter 60. I wish we could read all of it. Read all of it today. Listen to how the people break forth when God steps on the scene, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Translation, the plan to dwell with my people has come to pass. I have arrived. And when that happens, the second part of the plan comes to pass as well. The fulfillment of God's presence that a people who dwell with him would draw the nations to themselves. Listen to Isaiah. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth Thick darkness, the peoples. That darkness, that covering, that shroud is the injustice and the oppression that lurks not just here in America, not just here in Memphis, but in every corner of the globe, in every corner of every human heart. And the prophet says, everybody lives under that darkness. But lo and behold, the Lord will arise upon you, people of God, and His glory will be seen upon you. And as a result, people groping in the dark night of injustice will see the light of God's just reign and be drawn inevitably to it. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And not only do these kings come, brothers and sisters, they come speaking their languages every tongue and tribe, speaking their mother tongue, the goodness of the king, and they come bringing the results of their trades. When you read chapter 60 later this afternoon, you'll see Isaiah going around the points of the compass. People from up there will bring the stuff they're good at making, and people over there will bring the stuff that they're good at making, and people from down there will bring the stuff they're good at making, and I'll use it all, the Lord says, to beautify my house. And we could stay here all afternoon to say that this is a passage that tells us that God not only rescues the nations from their darkness, He brings all the beauty and goodness and glory of the nations to Himself. Because those people, too, are made in God's image. Every tongue and tribe and nation and they bring their glory, their God-given glory with them to adorn the house. And by the way, if you don't believe that this morning, unless you're Jewish this morning, you are part of those nations drawn in to the light that dwells among God's people. I wish I had more time to talk about that. Indeed, in one of the most stunning 
images in Isaiah, a book filled with stunning images. This one caught me off guard. I have a son named Isaiah, so I don't expect to be surprised by what's in this book. I have been relentlessly surprised in this sermon series by what's in this book, but this one really caught me off guard. Did you catch it? In that day, God says, I will make your overseers peace. I will make your taskmasters righteousness. Now, that language may not speak to you right away. So let me remind you, Israel is a people who knew about taskmasters. They knew about oppressive overseers. They knew life lived under the whip of taskmasters in Egypt when they were slaves in the house of bondage. And we know from this passage that as soon as they got a little power, they knew what it was like to try to become taskmasters themselves. They were oppressing their workers. They were the oppressive taskmasters. Everyone in this audience of Isaiah knew what it was like to have oppressor taskmasters over them, relentlessly controlling them, denying their dignity, denying their humanity. And God says, when I take up residence among my people, the only taskmasters you will have will be peace. And the only overseers you will have will be my just righteousness. Have you ever had an experience where you were so overwhelmed with something good, it like hurt? I can think of a few moments in my life around my children being born, a few moments in my life, in my relationship with Rebecca, experiences too close to talk about on this stage to me, where I was so overwhelmed with joy. It was like I was being oppressed by the goodness of the world. It's like I was being over. It's like I was being taken over. Have you ever had one of those experiences? It's here today and gone tomorrow. And you, you chase after it your whole life, try to get back to that high. And God says, one day when I take up residence with my people, the only taskmasters you will know will be righteousness and justice and peace and goodness. God's own at work in your community. We can't even imagine this. How will this happen? How will this happen? How? Because God will be with these people. To such an extent, they will need no sun. They will need no moon. God will be their light. And because God is their light, so dwelling amongst his people, Isaiah tells us, all of them will be righteous. All of them. A community so shaped by God's fiery presence among them that they cannot help but radiate God's justice in the world for the sake of the world. Brothers and sisters, the hope that Isaiah offered God's people is offered to us today in the exact same power and then some. Because this is the season of Easter because this is resurrection week. And we know that the way that God has fulfilled these promises, the way that God has gotten his plan back on track, the way that God has confronted our hypocritical injustice, invited us to plead not guilty, stepped onto the scene in forgiveness, in judgment, and in restoration is through becoming the man Jesus. We know that the way that God does Isaiah 58 through 60 is in the face of God in Jesus who came and lived for us and died for us and rose again from the dead for us. We know that when we needed confrontation with our unjust hypocrisy, God sends his son Jesus a prophet and more than a prophet. We know that when we needed to be reminded that we were the guilty ones, God came in the flesh to say, turn from your sins, go and sin no more. 
And when we registered that guilty plea, God stepped on the scene by dying the death that we deserved, by taking the injustice that we created, by burying our sins in the deepest heart of the sea, by taking to them to the grave in his flesh, stepping on the scene to judge injustice and offer forgiveness. And we know because it's Easter week that early one Sunday morning, that same king got up with all power in his hand and the risen Lord Jesus breathed that same spirit that Isaiah had prophesied into the mouths of his disciples. And he said, go as the father sent me, so send I you. We are the people who live in the aftermath of the earthquake that shattered the tomb. We are the people who know Isaiah 58 through 60 in our bones because we know Jesus by his spirit in our bones. And because of that, the risen Lord Jesus makes the way back to this calling for us. Think about it. Jesus steps on the scene. He puts on the breastplate of righteousness. He puts on the helmet of salvation. He works justice with his armor on the cross and in the resurrection. And because of that... What does Paul tell us in our own battle against the powers and principalities, against the world's dark evil, including as that evil shows up in all this injustice and brokenness? What do we do? We pick up Jesus's own armor, put on the full armor of God. The very breastplate that Jesus wore to wage war against sin and injustice is yours and mine to put on. Jesus gives us his spirit so that we might be with him to such an extent that we radiate and reverberate with his justice in the world to bring the nations in. Oh, we stand in that same messed up world that Dr. King stood in 53 years ago. Make no mistake about that. But we have the exact same hope that Dr. King testified to when he said that he'd seen the glory of the coming of the Lord because we have seen the glory that Isaiah prophesied in the coming of Jesus and in the coming of his spirit into our lives. If that's true, how do we respond? How do we respond? Quickly, I think our passage gives us just a few ideas. First, I suggest to you that if Jesus is the way that God steps on the scene, and he still steps on the scene right here among us, then Jesus is inviting us to discover what it means to hold together what he will not allow to be divided. Our life with Jesus and a life lived with loving justice. Jesus invites us to discover what it means that the justice we long for and the God for whom we were created cannot be experienced in isolation from each of those realities. To be candid, many of us who have been in the faith a longer time, and I know that's not everyone's story, but many of the people here who've been in the church a while have grown weary of the way that the church has picked one of these causes or the other, the worship of God or the love of neighbor. God invites us here and now to discover that because he stepped on the scene to get his plan back on track, we can experience life with God and lives empowered for the work of loving justice. 
in the same space and in the same place because of the same person who makes them possible. Secondly, Jesus calls us to confront our own unjust hypocrisy. We still need that confrontation that Dr. King came to bring to Memphis, and he stood in a long line of prophets who came to their places with that same message. We still need to be confronted with it. Dr. King came to Memphis to stand up for workers who were oppressed through their wages. Isaiah talked about a community of worshipers who oppressed the poor through their wages. We still live in a city where we like to quote Paul's words that the one who doesn't work shouldn't eat, while ignoring the fact that we have many citizens who are not only willing to work, but in fact are working and still can't earn enough to provide for themselves and their families. We live in a world, and we are all a part of that world. We need the confrontation with our unjust hypocrisy. We still live in a world where the trial around the killing of George Floyd or the recent spate of anti-Asian American racism reminds us that our institutions and our structures and our laws, and if we're honest and hope to God if you've been here long enough to get the message, our own hearts are haunted by the kind of racism, the kind of hypocritical unjust racism that we need to have confronted. The stranger among us, brothers and sisters, goes relentlessly unwelcomed, in my home at least, I don't know about yours. Whether that stranger comes to us in an undocumented immigrant or a refugee or the homeless person on the corners that we avoid, we need our unjust hypocrisy to be confronted and Jesus invites us to have it confronted in our encounter with him. We must invite Jesus' spirit to reveal these places of injustice to us and reveal the places where we are involved in that injustice. But thirdly, Jesus offers us his empowering spirit so that we might spend ourselves on behalf of our neighbor. If justice is about the faithful exercise of power in community, let's be really practical. Jesus stands in our midst and offers his spirit to empower us to faithfully spend every bit of the power that we have faithfully in community. We are invited to spend ourselves. Now, it is a privilege to preach this message in this church because I look around at a group of people who have heard this message and responded. I look around a room full of teachers and administrators who are giving their lives to the work of justice. I look around in a room full of uh, business people who are spending their lives trying to figure out how to make workplaces more humane. I look at a room full of neighbors spending their lives trying to make their neighborhoods a safer places for children and for human flourishing. I look at a room full of people involved at every level of the medical field who've been risking their lives during this COVID pandemic. But before that, we're risking their lives, every one of you, for a more just medical system in this city of medical inequity. I look at a room full of people giving their lives to welcoming the stranger and the immigrant. I look at a room full of people who are spending themselves for the sake of justice. And it is a privilege. It is a privilege to stand among such people and remind you to stay the course. But I also have to say that I felt really convicted by this word myself. I don't know if any of you need to hear this, but I needed to hear it this morning. The kind of justice that God demands of us is the kind of justice that, that, that it, we spend ourselves. What does that spending require? It requires focus and it requires sacrifice. It requires focus. How do you spend yourself 
on behalf of the hungry or the homeless or the undocumented or the low-wage worker unless you spend yourself in understanding that situation and then you sacrificially give your life, pour out your life for the sake of that situation. To such an extent that the homeless poor or the low-wage worker or the former offender or the undocumented immigrant is where? In your house, even wearing your clothes. Right? And I was convicted this week. Maybe it was because of Richard's sermon last week at Easter where he talked about how we live in an Instagram world. I, I, I was convicted this week by how often I have felt spent not from the work of doing justice, but from the very difficult work on Twitter of making all of you think about how just I am. I was convicted this week thinking about spending myself for justice, wondering how, how, how many times do I need all those Instagram resources, you know, Dave Brown and Enneagram and all that stuff, that need my soul care, got to get my, my rest, my Sabbath and all that stuff. Not because I'm exhausted from faithfully exercising my power on behalf of the neighbor, but because I'm exhausted of trying to prove myself woke enough to be accepted by my peers. Maybe I'm the only one. But it seems to me that one of the chief threats to us being mobilized for the work of spending ourselves in community is the temptation to flip from issue to issue, the temptation to be constantly self-presenting, to the temptation to be constantly angry at someone else, somewhere else, who should be doing something else to keep those homeless people from having to be in my house, to keep those low-wage workers from having to be in my workplace, to keep those kids from being outside of my school. Anything, whatever it takes, the constant rage and anger and projecting, whatever it takes to keep me from the kind of focus and attention demanded by the prophetic call to spend yourself on behalf of the hungry. Maybe I'm the only one in here who needs to hear that, but I know I need to hear that, brothers and sisters. I was struck this week Typically, English translations of the Bible say you when the Bible says y'all. We've talked about this a lot. Most of the commands are y'all commands, right? So when I went to this text, I expected this, spend yourself, give yourself in your home. I expected those to be y'all commands. I was struck by the fact they're not y'all commands. They're you commands. It's individual. Isaiah is saying you by saying all of you, every single one of you. Adriana, Wayne, LG, Sharday, Michael, Betty, you, each one of you, devote the kind of focus and the kind of sacrifice that the cause of justice in your sphere demands. And then, when each of us is doing that work and we come together as the body of Christ, then it will be said, there is a place where God so dwells that the entire community reverberates, resounds with his justice in the world for the sake of the world. Are you hearing me this morning? Are you hearing me this morning? By the way, I want to make this really clear. This is not, this bringing it into our home is not an anti-advocacy. It's not an anti-activism message either. I'm grateful for those of you who've helped me think about when to march and when to write letters and when to call. We need all that We need all that. But what we need, what God calls us to and invites us to, is a church where each and every one of us is saying, what is the power in my hands? And how do I faithfully exercise it in community for the sake of the neighbor? 
Because as someone who has the very Spirit of God in me, I can do nothing else. That's the kind of community we're called to be. And fourthly and finally, Jesus calls us to expect and look for ways to encourage the light of Christ in us to draw people to saving faith in him. As we ask God to so dwell in us that we radiate his justice, Jesus also invites us to expect and work for that light from God in us to bring other people to saving faith in Jesus. Right? Another way to say that, and as quickly and as provocatively as I can, is that we too at Downtown Church who want to talk a lot about justice, we also cannot tear apart what God has joined together. Another way I feel convicted by this passage is that I have spent a lot more time of late thinking about how to do justice than thinking about how a just community might verbally invite my neighbors to know Jesus themselves. In other words, evangelism easily falls off my map. And maybe nobody else has that problem, but I sure do. And the text stands here right here and says the whole, this is the whole, the whole story. This is the whole thing. God steps on the scene in Jesus by the power of his spirit to so dwell among this people that our lives radiate his justice in the world. Why? For the sake of drawing the world to saving faith in him. Just a few of the ways that we might receive Isaiah 58 through 60 this morning. Uh, My friend Pete Nelson drew my attention this week to the juxtaposition of Dr. King's death on Easter Sunday last week. And so I spent some time reading some speeches and thinking about his life. And again and again, I don't know if you you ever look back at any of these civil rights stories, you know, I just think, where did they get the courage? Where did they get... Where did they get the energy? Where did they get the persistence? I read John Lewis's biography earlier this year. The man got beat up again and again and again and again. He recently died. He got beat up dozens of times, incarcerated dozens of times for a movement that he understood to be God's own movement of loving justice. And I think, man, I am such a wimp. Where did they get that energy? Where did they get that courage? Brothers and sisters, Isaiah tells us where they got that energy and courage. They got it from a prophecy that made them look to Jesus and to see in him the God who so dwelt among his people that they could not help but reverberate with his just character in the world for the sake of the world. That's where they got the energy. That's where they got the perseverance. And that's where we'll get the energy and we'll get the perseverance and we'll get the hope or not. Do you want that energy? Do you want that perseverance? Do you long for justice? Do you want God in your life? The answers are all here. Jesus stands in our midst. Come to him this morning for the first time or the millionth time. Come to him and downtown church. Let's plead that his transforming presence would make us his people really and truly for the sake of our neighbor and for the glory of God. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the great king. And we are here in your presence seeing how far we fall short and yet desperate desperate that you would give us your spirit, desperate that you would fill us with your presence, desperate that you would make us a people who radiate your life into the world.
for the sake of our neighbors and for your glory. Would you do that work even in us? Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.